Hello and welcome to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from the sixth hole tee box at Old Silo, high above Somerset Creek. And this is Season 5, Episode 6. Today, I welcome back to the show Ethan Fisher, PGA, to discuss his article he recently contributed over at OneBeardedGolfer.com about the spectacular rise, fall, and the lessons learned from the former Old Silo Golf Course in Mount Sterling, Kentucky. Ethan formerly held a position as the media and communications director for Golf House Kentucky, which was the, or which is rather, the umbrella organization for the Kentucky Golf Association, the Kentucky PGA, and the Kentucky Golf Foundation, uh, where, among his other duties, he drafted previews, game stories, and wrap-ups for Kentucky's major golf tournaments, and also hosted the organization's podcast. While there, he caught the curiosity bug that plagues so many Kentucky golfers of a certain vintage and location wondering what the big deal was and what really happened with Old Silo. It's a subject that remains fascinating to me and until Ethan posed a rather simple but poignant question to me near the end of our conversation, I might not have been able to tell you why. He put it to me as to why it mattered so much to so many people that Old Silo existed in the first place and why so many people are so emotional about its demise. Short answer is, it was Kentucky Golf's, no, more specifically, Kentucky Public Golf's or Publicly Accessible Golf's shooting star. It was magnificent, adored, instantly acclaimed, It was a course that burned white hot on the Kentucky golf marketplace starting in 2000 and then degraded and died right before our eyes, none able to save it or sustain it in 2017. It's marvel gone, though, and all agreed that it was a damn shame that it was gone indeed. Look, I thoroughly enjoyed reminiscing about my experiences there uh, and interviewing Ethan about his wonderful article. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Most importantly, I hope you will take a a few moments, head over to OneBeardedGolfer.com and check out his article. It's really well done. Uh, Some fun quotes, some insights, um, and as we talk about here, wonder what what could have been done, if anything. Uh, Before we dive into our conversation today, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is made possible without commercial interruption or the influence, nor copious amounts of fatty food. Thanks to my day job as David Hill Realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I help people sell their houses and find new homes, as well as helping investors and businesses with their commercial property needs here in Central Kentucky. It's always a great time to be a homeowner, and if you want to know what's happening in our market, please reach out. You can email me at davidhill at rhr.com or reach out at 859-333-4517, and I'd be happy to start a conversation with you. Now, quick, into the time machine as I look back at the glory and the gory details of the legend of Old Silo with my friend, Ethan Fisher. Uh, Well, welcome in, Ethan. Thank you for getting, uh, for sharing your journalism uh, over on the blog. Everyone should check that out. It's the the most recent article up over at OneBeardedGolfer.com. I'd read it before. It's prior iteration when you were in your uh kentucky golf house life or golf house mm-hmm. kentucky i always get that backwards yeah, um, you're not the only one speaking with ethan fisher pga uh it formerly worked in the basically you were the media relations department um 
spokesman extraordinaire for the Kentucky Golf Association, Kentucky PGA, the whole umbrella uh, family. Mm-hmm. Yep. And your article is on something that, uh, as you can tell, is was a passion of mine, was a bit of a hobby horse, and that was the the rise and fall of Old Silo Golf Course in Mount Sterling, Kentucky. Uh, I know you have told me that you got to play it once in 2016, which was the year before it it permanently closed. Mm-hmm. For listeners that may have heard of, you may have heard of Old Silo. If you're a Kentucky golfer, you know of Old Silo. Um, if you are a a golf rankings person, you may have seen it at times. It was in all of the lists, all the state-by-state lists. Uh, it was a daily fee public access course in a town of Mount Sterling, Kentucky, about 30 to 45 minutes from downtown Lexington, uh, right in the the foothills, kind of in the transition area from the bluegrass to Appalachia proper. And let me set, so it opens in 2000. And let me take you in the time machine back to 2000, Ethan. This is pre-Facebook. This is before the proliferation of uh, a lot of, I mean, all the rankings were in print. I don't know you know what i don't remember what golf digest online present looks like or golf magazine so this was the time that around here uh the inspiration for my blog and for this program the golfkentuckylinks.com that was it that was the bible that was the almanac that was the world atlas for golf in kentucky and it was two guys uh mo and ron two retired guys that would travel around and play the state and they'd they had this little kind of five-point ranking system. And so they would just write up, you know, maybe a paragraph or two of, you know, conditions, design, difficulty, bozo factor. That was my favorite. It, you know, <laughs> were you playing a place where you were going to, you know, where etiquette was enforced, pace of play was enforced, or were you out there with guys in jean shorts uh, and carts full of beer and a high, what they'd call a high bozo factor? Um, and so Mo and Ron and the, the Mo Ron report was there kind of following their golf around. And then it, it evolved after they, uh, the two founders kind of handed over the reins as they aged and it became kind of a chat room. And that was a place where what you would get on social media. Now you would find their condition course conditions. Uh, we would do as a member of that community, it was kind of an early golf community. You think, um, the golfers journal, you know, they have their own discord online community um fried egg i think has a big pretty big online community following well that's what this this was free and it was basically just a kentucky centric online community of guys would get together a couple times a year i i don't was that still around when you got to kentucky no i think that's the first time i've ever heard of it just now okay well that was on my about page, that was the inspiration for my blog. It was dying down. They weren't doing the reviews. And so that was, um, I thought, I wasn't picking up the torch exactly because I wasn't doing the same thing, but it's kind of an homage. Um, and so that was how you found out about courses. And that is where the legend for me, you know, there wasn't, you would hear of these, I didn't grow up in golf. And this was the, you know, the late nineties was, the tail end, the peak, the pinnacle of the build a one golf course a day, yep. right? And so, um, old silo epitomied all of it. It was, um, but tell well. Let me start you with this. 
tell the listeners a little bit about who Graham Marsh was. Because at this time, I didn't know anything about design. I didn't know anything about architecture. I knew two, but plain old silo, I knew two things. It was hard and it was different. It was different than anything else I'd ever seen in Kentucky. So tell folks a little bit about Graham Marsh, the, the designer of the course, and maybe if you found out in your research, how in the world they got him to Mount Sterling, Kentucky. <laughs> Certainly. So Graham Marsh kind of takes the role of what a lot of professional golfers seem to do. They have a pretty successful career, all things considered. He was not a PGA Tour player. He was mostly overseas. He won a lot of a lot of events on the Japanese tour, about 10 times on the European tour. And he did get one win in the States at Harbortown back in the late 70s. So great career, made a lot of money. And after his heyday was done playing golf, he got into the golf course architecture industry. And as you can tell, just by where he played, his portfolio started out with courses that are in the Eastern Hemisphere. So Australia and Asia were his two hotbeds to start out with. And I'm not exactly sure how many golf courses he had built on those two continents before he came over here, but you touched on it. There was the golf course building boom where everybody wanted to build a golf course. And given the fact that the United States were a big hotbed for opportunity, off he came to Kentucky. And I'm not sure if Old Silo was his very first golf course in the U.S. If it wasn't, I'd be willing to wager a good sum of money that it was definitely one of his first five. But regardless of what order it may have been in, given the fact that he came over here, he wanted to make an impression. So there wasn't going to be any stone unturned when it came to building old silo. He was going to build something that was going to get people's attention. That way, other places in the area would go, oh, look at this Graham Marsh design out in Kentucky. That's awesome. He did that in a place like that. We should bring him over to California, Montana, whatever exotic landscape you want to pick from. So he he certainly did not spare any uh, any expense nor his team when it came to building old silo, and I'm sure we'll touch on it. But that's one of one of the things that you can maybe speculate on what could have made the golf course's outcome a little different down the road. Uh, no stone unturned was apropos of the difference and kind of what happened there. The idea, as I understand it, and what he talked the developer into, I guess at the time, was to bring a bit of the sand belt to Kentucky. Well, here's a, a the dirty little secret. There's no sand in Kentucky. I mean, if you're dredging a river bottom, okay, fine. But we, especially in this part, in the bluegrass and in Appalachia, if we're, we're lucky if we have a few inches to a few feet of topsoil sitting on top of solid limestone rock. That's just exactly. where we are in the world. That's why our water makes the most delicious bourbon, because mm -hmm. it's filtered through that limestone. But it is difficult to shape golf courses and you know that is not our natural grasses are not necessarily great um we're in the transition zone yep. so uh cold weather grasses are going to have to be baby during the summer and uh, warm weather grasses are going to go to sleep about halloween and maybe wake up by easter um so they bringing the sand belt to kentucky and and i'm stressing the sand because that's what made 
you could t- the greens were fun. They were great. I loved the sight lines of Old Silo. Somerset Creek is a body of water that runs right through the middle of the course. Five five holes, parts of five holes are routed right around it. And it's this beautiful, it used to, it was kind of a divider um, of a few holes. And it was beautiful, this valley, this kind of sunken valley between two ridges, two ledges. Um, it, I thought it was a wonderfully routed golf course. Some people didn't like yeah. kind of getting up and out of the canyon uh, and coming back in, but it was this really thoughtfully uh, routed course. There was going to be, or there is a real estate component, but it's not like, uh, it's not like Florida golf where the houses are just lined up. Uh, it's not a big landman thing where the houses are, are 25 yards off the rough and they're in play or anything like that. Uh, so, and as your piece points out, um, just by the wildness of what remains now, it's not like it's, the houses are on all sides, but he had, what was the final number on the bunkers? Best guess. I want to say it was between 100 and 120 off the top of my head. Yeah. For 18 holes up close to, you know, originally maybe uh, 120 bunkers and they were not flat bottom, easy to play out. They were the big no. Australian splash face. You had to, you had to pull and push the sand up the faces after a rainstorm. You know, I don't know if Billy Bunkers existed. I don't know when they came and became, you know, online and, and became prominent and then the better, you know, better Billy Bunker and they've got different systems now. But um, this was hard clay foundations in these bunkers and you sp- just kind of splayed the sand up and then uh, the face would block your view and being on the golf course, it was absolutely amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. I hadn't played a lot of travel golf, hadn't been to the coast or anything. And those bunkers were what made the course. And I, yeah. I don't know, did you go back and read any of the reviews or any of the comments from when it opened and and the golf digest or any of the you know, people noticed. Right. It was something exquisite. It was something exotic in Kentucky of all places. Yeah. And Looking through those reviews, it was pretty clear right off the bat just how much of a juxtaposition old silo was from every other golf course, not just in Kentucky. But if we look at that area in particular, like, you know, Mount Sterling is not known for its golf and really the whole northeastern part of our state. It's just not a golf hotbed. So when old silo comes along, you've got people who have played these flat hinky dink courses coming to old silo and our minds are just instantly blown and the bunkers were certainly a large part to do with that but then you talked about grasses earlier the fact that this place was bent grass from tea to green that's certainly going to strike an impression when you go to something other than zoysia grass like so many courses in this state are but it and it opened with with bent grass tea to green and 2001 was one of the worst droughts we ever had It, it I remember Widow's Watch was only teas and greens. They ran out of water. Um, people were talking about running a pipeline from Lexington to the Ohio River because the drought was so bad. We had water restrictions. So that was a heck of a time for them to open a golf yeah. course like that. Yeah, you're telling me. But it it really is. It's sad, but it is fascinating at the same time to look through reviews and see them progressively kind of degress through the years because – between 2000 and 2009, everything is just glowing 
people are saying this is the best golf course in the state, maybe even better than Valhalla or Old Stone. And then all of a sudden you get to reviews that are more published around 2014, 2015. And all five of those stars just see you later. It's one star and everyone's just ripping on it. And it it's kind of hard to believe when you look through all that, that people are talking about the same property, but that's just how severe the decline was. And it, it was, the course was open for basically 16 and a half years. Yeah. Uh, from, from ribbon cutting to locking the doors. Um, now you were able to track down one of the first professionals there, a gentleman named Mike Beverly PGA, yep. um, mm -hmm. who is still around. Highlight a couple of things you learned from Mike, and I, I really want to know when he was talking about it. Was there was there a disgust factor, or was it all just kind of nostalgia? Um, what was it like chatting with him, someone who was was there and now has to know that 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 part of his professional life, something he poured blood, sweat, and and tears into, just basically up and vanished. Yeah, I pointed this out in the article, but one thing that really stuck with me when I had my conversation with him was how he came to Old Silo Blind. He was from West Virginia, and he had been in Kansas, if I'm not mistaken, before accepting the Old Silo job, but he had never seen the golf course before. So his wife, being from Lexington, it made sense, especially for her, but also for him, just to get back to a, a neighboring state and I don't think there are too many golf professionals, especially today in the social media age, who are going to go to a golf course blind without seeing it. Um, maybe you accept a job to become a head pro somewhere if you haven't been there, but you've seen enough photos to be like, okay, I, I know what I'm getting myself into. But early 2000s, it's just kind of a, you know, you might get lucky, you might not. And when he got there, he was very lucky and he was glowing about it. And, you know, we've talked about the bunkers and the grass being exceptional, but, you know, you don't really think about this from the everyday golfer's point of view. But the thing he really loved is the fact that the car paths were just smooth as smooth as a billiard table and that there was nothing out of shape with the property. So, he he felt extraordinarily blessed to come to this place and to have the opportunity to work there. And I don't remember when he left. I'm not sure if it lined up with when the course started to go downhill. But then when we talked about what he knew after the golf course closed, which wasn't a whole lot, but he came back to Kentucky with his wife to visit family and I want to say this was maybe 2020. So the course has been closed for three years at this point. He goes by old silo just to see what it looks like. And he was tearing up at the fact that this place had basically just become rummaged and had gone so far from what it had been 20 years prior. And I think that when you, when you work there and you love it, granted you can, play there a thousand times and you can establish an amount of love. But I think just speaking from someone who's been in the golf industry, that passion and love is a little different. And I quoted this element of what our conversation was at the very end of the piece, but he talked about how if he became a millionaire, there would be one thing you would do 
right away, which is resurrect old silo. And that I think says a lot when it comes to the fact that that's just how much the course meant to him and the community at large. Cause he, he understood that serving people for several years. And then when you see the aftershock of what happens when it's not there, it can leave an impression to say the least. You know, Mike Beverly was very candid. I, I was impressed kind of by his, his candor about budgeting and how expensive it really is to maintain a golf course. You know, there's still a clubhouse there. Um, at the time of the article, you wrote the article, I guess it was in, it was a restaurant in between jobs, so to speak. The, the, the physical structure was still there, but nothing was there. Um, I just thought, I don't know if he just, did he just keep it in generalities? He made some comments. There's some quotes in the, the article, um, you know, the, the, the old joke about clubhouses is nobody eats at the restaurant when it rains, right? On a rainy day, the parking lot's empty. Um, and, you know, at, at that time, when it opened, the early 2000s, we were not really a 12-month golf uh, yeah. state. We have gotten warmer. My joke in college in the late 90s was you get two days a month minimum that you can play golf. And you're lucky if one of those is on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Um it is that has changed for the most part in most parts of Kentucky. Um, but did he have any, did Mike have any theories or just from his experience? And I think the, the one quote was, you know, it, it's, it can go downhill really quickly if the money's not coming in, if the money's not going to the, the right places or something to that extent, was there a backstory to that? Or was he just kind of, kind of waxing philosophical at that point? I think it's more so the latter. I okay. don't, I don't recall there being any sort of mention about you need X number of dollars in order to make things float. But if you, if you read the post, like bunkers are the one thing to get really specifically touched on in there when it comes to what it takes to maintain those. But beyond that, it's, it's more so just generalities to the point where, you need a constant cash flow coming in there in order to keep everything in tip top condition, because we've talked about the location of it. This isn't a place where you've got a ton of passionate golfers. Mount Sterling certainly has them, but they're relying on a lot of outside business. And when that stops, whether it's during the winter time, just a bad weather week, whatever the case may be, you can certainly see what the results will be right away when that cash isn't coming in. And I think if you factor in the fact as well that there's just how can I put it? I might need you to well in, pause, in the piece in 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 the piece you say yeah uh, what he says is you know fixed costs don't stop for a golf course regardless yes. what day of the week it is. And that's, yeah. that's absolutely true. And that's, if you've got 120 bunkers that have to be raked, that's, you know, your man hour calculation on that is pretty high. I've, I've right. done grunt work. I used to run a sand, you know, we'd alternate running a sand pro or being the guy that raked the edges. And those were relatively flat bottom. I don't know if you can get a sand pro in a lot of those old silo bunkers because the faces were so steep. You'd just be dragging a little spot in the bottom. Somebody had to mm -hmm. physically pull that sand up. That's kind of the difference. Yeah. Um, the the yeah. other thing I'll say to that too is that because this was a facility that didn't charge an inordinate amount of money, green fees were 
40, $50 with the cart to play 18 holes per person back in on the, the weekend day. on the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Even cheaper on the weekdays. And I don't, I don't remember what membership fees were, but they were extremely reasonable. Like you would not have to have a, a six-figure job by any means in order to become a member there. So they were they were relying on a lot of customers coming in, paying a small amount of money, and you know over time they probably should have raised their prices. And you know you give them credit for keeping it low as long as they did. And we always talk about how one of the big holdups in golf is affordability and old silo certainly did its part to make that a less of a burden to people. I mean, 40, $50 can still be a lot of money, but it's not $200. Like you would see a lot of public golf courses in that sort of condition charge. No. And for listeners that may be confused while we're talking about this, it, it was, it was a wonderful golf course. The reason you haven't heard of Mount, I'm sorry, uh, Mount Sterling is because there's no reason you should have heard of Mount Sterling. It's a town of set roughly 7,000 people about 30 to 45 minutes east of Lexington. It's on the road. Basically it's, it's, it's not a suburb. It's not an exurb. It's just a a small country town on the interstate on the way to West Virginia. Basically. Um, It is. I would put it in the way that when you're on a road trip, it's that perfect place you're looking for. If you just want to get a quick McDonald's sandwich, get gas real quick, just pull off the interstate. You go maybe a quarter of a mile, hardly any traffic. You can immediately get back on the road without any sort of hindrance. It had a crystal. The, the greatest the, the greatest off-course thing at Old Silo was that there was a crystal at the on the main road, the main drag. Uh, where you would turn off to get to the golf course. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was there. It was on an island. Lexington has some nice golf courses. It has had Kearney Hill, which is a public and public access. Uh, there were several competitors that came online at the time Old Silo came in. You had Houston Oaks in Paris, which was a residential development course that was interesting. Um, uh, Gibson Bay down in Richmond, Kentucky, a Michael Hurdson course. Um, that's a county-operated yes. course. And was Cherry it, Blossom around the same time frame? Too? Cherry Blossom, Cherry Blossom came in at the same time. The Widow's Watch, knee uh, Golf Club of the Bluegrass, knee now it's Golf Club of Widow's Watch or something. The, the course out in Nicholasville. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had several things come online there. You also had in the the eastern part of the state. I wonder how much Old Silo's success had to do, and I'm hoping to get to this in a future podcast with someone. Um, you had. In the eastern half of the state, you had several state park courses come online that were high-end yeah. uh, designs, an Arthur Hills course, uh, a Barry Serafin course. You've got uh, Dale Hollow down in southern Kentucky, which is still regarded as one of the best public golf courses. It was all part of that. Go- so you had this gym, this really polished gym come online at a time that there were a lot of other gyms, a lot of other well thought out. These weren't um, just Pete Dye knockoffs, you know, the local architect. Um, so I, I wonder if that, I'm sure that contributed to it because those courses struggled too. you know, when the financial crisis mm-hmm. hit in, in 2008, everybody had to tighten their belts. Um, you know, golf now that the whole golf now model, I'm sure they went through different versions of that where their, their pricing integrity had given away. Um, talk to me a little bit, Ethan, another guy you talked to was Logan Hogue. Hog, 
um, one of Kentucky's top players of the la- of this century, really. And, and tell me a little bit about his connection and uh, I guess his nostalgia at Old Silo, what you learned from him. Logan, for those who don't know the name, he won the state amateur in 2015, and then he did everything except win the state open in the years following. He was low pro one year. He was a runner-up. He was low amateur. So really the only thing he didn't do is win that tournament. And I was, I think he was the number one person who I wanted to get in contact with for this article, hence the reason why he is the opening portion of this story and he's from Mount Sterling and I knew from Brad Martin former co-worker of mine at Golf House Kentucky and friend of yours that Logan had experience with old silo and I didn't realize it was to the extent that he has so he went to high school there and you know kind of that quintessential boy thing to do when you're in high school you finish your day in the classroom, you go over to the golf course, you play a little bit, and then you don't have to pay for anything. All you have to do is just kind of clean carts, make sure that they're where they need to be for the place to close the shop for the evening, and you go on your way. And Logan was, as you can tell by his accomplishments, he was one of the best players in the state during the mid-2010s. And that doesn't just happen by accident. There's got to be something for it. And he specifically cited the fact that old silo being his home course helped mold him into the player. He became the shots that you had to hit out there. They taught him that you've got to swing the club a certain way. You've got to play the ball to react in different environments. And he attributed old silo to being a big part of the reason why he got to the level he did and it it crushed him as it did with everyone to see it close. And he touched on the fact that there have been rumors with old silo and its future. Like he talked about a couple of times people chattering about, Oh, maybe the driving range is going to reopen. Maybe the front nine is going to reopen. And ultimately it doesn't mean anything, but I think just, Just by talking to him, it was pretty evident that he would take anything in order for that place to reopen. I believe he lives kind of in that area now. He's not chasing the dream or anything in the professional golf scene. So I think for someone like that who grew up playing there, there's probably nothing in the world he wants more than for old Silo to reopen. And I don't know if he has kids or wants them in the future, but I would imagine if he does hope to have son and or daughter one day he'd probably love to be able to go take him there but the fact that the place is closed and his future kids and anyone in the Mount Sterling area doesn't have the opportunity to do what he did is devastating to him and one thing that you'll find in the article as you read it is the kind of the ironic contrast of when he got really good and was having all this success, it was the same time old silo eventually closed and when the bad reviews started to happen. And I thought that was a interesting coincidence and a strange parallel when it came to just how one was going up, one was going down, but he was a uh, very forthright with what he talked about. And I think it's a, uh, 
a pretty pretty good image as to what the golf course did mean and what it could still mean one day if it were to ever reopen, no matter how how unlikely that might be at this point. You know, I go back and forth on the reopen it question because it was it was a magnificent golf course. And to to kind of tail end on on Logan, it's a place that you had, you know, forward tilt, you're going up and down hills and ravines, but you had a lot of lateral tilt too. You did you didn't have a lot of uh flat level lie. So you learned you learned how to hit off difficult lies. You learned how to position your your body to accomplish something, yeah. you know, it wasn't just the flat um, driving range swing that, that you would right. develop there. Um, but at the same time, not every golf course that died needs to be resurrected. Um, you know, the, as I mentioned at the open old silo was peak 2000, you know, 1990s golf course construction. It was big. It was made to be hard. You know, it's 200 mm-hmm. plus acres. Um, it is absolutely golf cart dependent, you know, getting down oh, into yeah. Somerset Creek and coming back up. I walked the front nine once I did. Um, oh, God bless you. And I mean, it's, there's a switchback trail in the transition. I think I, I know I let one group go through. I might've let a second group go through from the second green. You go down into the valley, you know, behind the green, you go into the valley across a little What Now I don't think that bridge is operational from your pictures. Um, and then you've got a switchback trail and it was all concrete path. So there's probably a million dollars just in cart path in two thousands money, just the amount of way it was engineered. And it was a continuous loop. It wasn't just teasing greens. Um, it was built big greens that were not close together. I mean, there were loops, but it was not a, not a contiguous parcel. You know, you had kind of a, you had a, a, you went out and you kind of looped around and then you came back across the Creek back to the clubhouse. And then you went out and you, you kind of did a leaf in a different direction and you went to the very back of the property and came around. So, um, it was going, you know, for your, your greens mowers and all of your maintenance staff, it was maintenance heavy. You know, I don't know how mm-hmm. big a crew they had. I, you know, from where I've worked, I would guess they probably had at a minimum 10 to 12 guys trying to keep up with that golf course. Yeah. I think that's that, fair. That's a and there's a huge infrastructure. You know, so your water lines are pretty big. Your drainage, you're on rock. Then you've got to worry about floods. Uh, one of the yep. things you know, you talk to a, a buddy of mine, Jeff West, out there, a, a gentleman, a very avid golfer, kind of a, a known commodity in the the golf scene around here. Um, mm-hmm. In that creek, as beautiful as it is, is, this is Kentucky that we flood. Creeks, yeah. you know, people people joke about the hollers getting flooded out in East Kentucky. Well, this is the same situation. This is stuck in between, um, yeah. you know, in a ravine, and there were five green pads down there. If you can still see them, if you pull up Google Maps, at least the mobile version, um, it's a photo. I don't know how dated that satellite image is, but it you, you can see that the course has gone a bit wild, especially in that valley, and you can see the green pads. Mm-hmm. And those had to be, if they weren't underwater, that it probably got scarily close at least a few times, I would think. Uh, so if you're talking sure. to kind of the local on the ground, um, I thought Jeff made some good points. And, and tell me a little bit about your conversation with him. Yeah, the, the thing he brought up that was, I guess, just kind of staggering to hear is that, you know, people – hate car path only and it's 
I think most people who have a bit of common sense understand that it's necessary at times. So even, even when it was dry, holes six, 16, those would probably be cart path only all the time, but it got so bad that if there was a lot of rain, even just a lot of foot traffic was just causing an incredible amount of damage. And this isn't like the best comparison to make. It's little apples to oranges. But if you think back to around this time last year when St. Andrews talked about the uh, the Swilkin patio by the Swilkin Bridge on the 18th yes. airway, it was kind of similar to that in the fact that, no, that spot in Scotland, it's not always getting trudging with rain but at the same time there's just so much traffic going by that it's causing damage and like you get a sensitive spot on one of those couple of holes and by gosh there's going to be some damage so that was an interesting point that got brought up but you I think it's a good element to speak on with what you're kind of saying about you know the golf course doesn't have to reopen in the sense that the amount of manpower and engineering that would be required just to get that little section of the golf course alone, forget about the other 15 or 16 holes on property that right there. I don't know this for a fact. I would be willing to bet that more than half of the budget you would need to resurrect old silo could probably be spent on that section of the golf course alone. And you brought up the fact we're in Kentucky Lord knows what's going to happen with mother nature. She could drop the ultimate bombshell and just ruin any sort of progress that's being made. If there was construction being done to bring it back. And, you know, we've had three, you know, we've had 300 year storms in the last like 12 years here. Yeah, exactly. And when you build in the Valley, like if you're, if the golf course is up on top of the ridges, kind of a la Stonecrest. Okay. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a mine reclamation site. It's up on top of the mountain. When it rains, if it's even torrential flooding rain, okay, the sand in the bunkers may go with it, but that rain is going to get off the mountain. When you build in the valley at the bottom, the water's all coming there, you know? Yeah. Um, so it just kind of goes against a, yeah, you'd have plenty of water for irrigation, but it just seems to go against um, the movement in golf now that is sustainability, kind of mm-hmm. environmental friendliness, being in rural Mont. You know, Montgomery County, Kentucky, I don't know how stringent or, or how big of a, a priority that was when, when old silo was designed, you know, the past players, I'm, there's a divide, you know, I think there's a divide. Now everybody talks sustainability because water is getting so expensive, especially in mm-hmm. major population areas, but I don't know that environmental sensitivity is something that was a big deal there. Um, you know, you mentioned that the, you mentioned that the decline, it, it closed all of a sudden. You go bankrupt a little bit at a time and then all at once is kind of the old saying. And you mentioned in, in comparison to Logan's career that old silo was kind of bleeding thousand little paper cuts. The, the shine came off the fifth star and then the shine came off the fourth star and so on. From personal experience, what I noticed, the greens were usually fine. They took care of those. But those bunkers, those big, beautiful bunkers, uh, um, Mr. Beverly mentioned, you know, he recommended as early as 2003 that they um, that they do a, a big, uh, at least 35 of them could be filled in and most golfers wouldn't notice because they weren't in play. Yeah. They were just, yep. you know, probably eye candy. Um, 
let me ask you this being a, a PGA of America member yourself, are there golf course owners association is something different, but in your time in, in around golf, the golf business, are there resources available for owners or managers, PGA pros kind of, if you, you feel like you're from the business side, you know, if you feel like your business isn't getting the most, or you feel things starting to slip, um, are there resources available for those guys or is that more on the turf side or um is you know just let capitalism be capitalism there are resources available but unless unless it is caused by mother nature it tends to be a very small amount of money that you'd be able to get and the reason why i specifically bring up the weather element is because the pga has what's called the disaster relief fund so if you take the tornadoes that hit the western part of kentucky a couple of years ago, there were multiple courses who applied for that and got a lot of money out of that because that's that's not something that is golf courses control. That's just an act of God that is a bad stroke of luck. So when you have when you have that come through and naturally if the damage is more significant, you get more money, then you can you can get back on the right foot. And Indian Hills Country Club and Bowling Green is a good example of that they got desecrated by the tornadoes, applied for the relief fund, and now golf course is coming back about as good as it's ever been. So that's, and then they had and then they had a fire and burned their clubhouse down. Well the fire uh, the fire came first. <laughs> John John Mullendore is a childhood friend of mine. We played yeah. uh, uh, Little League East at Cariacas Park together, the, the longtime mm-hmm. pro down there. Um so you've got natural resource things. What about help with business plan or model or marketing i assume if there's employee theft that's an either an insurance issue you're probably not going to get that money back even if it gets discovered um a lot of these courses i just wonder did they stick their head in the sand and you know my anecdote my, my least favorite anecdote about old silo i went there once i tried to get there once a year every year mm-hmm. and the last couple times um one one guy said, I guess the the next to last time I went, they said, "Oh yeah, the the bunkers, uh, it was, it was still fifty dollars, which was a little high for me then, mm-hmm. um, yeah, for the the weekend, and the bunkers are being repaired, so they're they're out of play." And I, and I kind of looked at him because the the last year they weren't much better, and the sand was gone. They were just basically hard clay bunkers. I felt like that's mm-hmm. not. I, I don't think that was 100% honest. Um, yeah. When I went back the next year, I was in the clubhouse and somebody else, whoever was working the pro shop told some other customer, the same thing. It's like, buddy, those, those there's crabgrass and nut, nut sedge in there. Um, right. And, and that, you know, the chemical budget from the PGA. If you're running a golf course, some of the first things that I assume they're going to be cut your chemical budget, is going to you're going to keep the water on to keep the grass growing but the weed and chemical budget the labor for maintaining the bunkers have to be some of the first things that go and you know that's what made old silo so special to so many people yeah. the conditioning yeah and 
you you brought up at the top the fact that I played there one time and it was in the fall of 2016. So at this point I'm a junior at EKU and shameless plug in their PGA golf management program. And I've been in Kentucky for two years at this point, And I had heard about old silo being one of the best golf courses in the state, especially public catching my eye. And I'm like, you know, it's only an hour away from Richmond. So I've got a few buddies who were freshmen because I was in RA that year. So we took a little group trip up there. And since I hadn't seen it before and I'm just going off of what I've seen online, I'm, going in there with the expectation that this place is just going to blow our socks off and we're going to love it. And then like, it was so clear from when we got into the parking lot before we even walked in the clubhouse, just kind of looking out over the property, just kind of like, Hmm, something's not quite right here. And then you get to the first hole. And honestly, I mean, just from the first tee looking out over towards the, 18th and 9th greens you can see the bunkers over there and then when you actually get in them like we just kind of were looking at ourselves on the second or third hole and we're like what is going on here and I, I kind of felt bad because like I talked this big game about how this is going to be such a great golf course and it just didn't meet expectations at all and the bunkers were the one thing that just absolutely killed any of the excitement around it and one one picture i had tried to find when i wrote that article and it's probably gone now but there was one picture i got of it's a par five you might have to help me remember what hole it is it's a par five you're going downhill there's a pond that kind of borders the neighborhood and that was on the back nine that was yeah i want to say like 14 13 13. Okay, 13. I'm at the top of that hill and like looking straight down into the bunker that fronted that green, like you, you couldn't help but laugh almost at just how sad of a state it was in. It was, it was just kind of like it was a joke that like this is really your attempt at maintaining a bunker. And it, it kind of ties back to that one comment Mike Beverly made that you referenced if you're going to have all these bunkers and a lot of them are just there to kind of get people's attention, go, Oh, look at that. Then I just fill them in at that point. Right. You know, that's the, the low cost option was, was it McKenzie or, or Tillinghast that went around the country during the depression, filling in bunkers. Like that was his side gig. Um, I should know. Probably. Probably Tillinghast. I might be wrong, but just based off what I know of them, it seems like something AW would do. One of those guys, like their their the revenue was they it was part of the public works deal, and he went around filling in bunkers on a lot of these on a lot of golden age and kind of Victorian golf courses too. Mm-hmm. Um, you you conclude the article with a comparison. I mentioned it before. It, it goes with yeah. um, Park Mammoth, which mm-hmm. you know that I love, of course that you love that when Brian and Colton built that, they designed it to be kind of the opposite of old silo. It's yeah. a, it's not a develop, it's not a big housing development course. What Mr. Chandler will do with it eventually, who knows, but it has, it was designed to be run with a three man crew. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got a, I think 
about maybe one and a half bunkers per hole if you add them all up, which is a far cry from 120 for, for 18 holes. Yeah. Um, and for, for those that are listening, just talk a, a little bit about the difference of a golf course like that, that can be walked just the, maybe the, the finances and how you can market it, a, a golf course that is contiguous, that isn't heavily treed, that, you know, doesn't have miles of cart path. They just do greens and tees there, high traffic areas. Mm-hmm. Kind of compare and contrast a, a little bit for listeners, because I thought you did a nice job in the article, uh, just with your your background, be able to, being able to explain it maybe a little better than I can. Well, that's kind of the thing. When I was writing that piece last year and I was sitting there thinking about it and I'd played Park Mammoth for the first time about three or four months prior to getting this project started. And I'm just thinking about the economic factors and I'm like, man, there are a lot of similarities between these two properties and Similarities the meaning that factor. they're yeah they're not in population centers they're yeah. roughly half hour from their closest population center so yep. it, in places without big native populations so you're going to rely on right. it's not just Jim Bob and Earl you know getting off after their their shift mm-hmm. between that and the immediate accolades and I stress immediate because it's like they cut the ribbon and boom, everybody out here is just raving about the place. They both had those in comparison. But then when I was just thinking about if I'm standing at the clubhouse or in Park Mammoth's case, what will be the clubhouse? If I'm standing at those places at each golf course and I'm looking out, you can see pretty much every hole at Park Mammoth from that spot, maybe like 16 T, 15 green and number 12. I think those might be the only holes that you wouldn't be able to see. You got to save a little mystery, save a little mystery for the golfer. Yeah, exactly. Right. At old silo, you could see one, nine, 10, 18, and just a crap ton of shrubbery. And we've talked a little bit about the size of old silo, but it's it's just kind of if you've played both golf courses, you're gonna know what I'm talking about and the fact that old silo is a place that you are truly going on an adventure through wilderness and you're gonna be in a lot of different um, settings when it comes to being in the valley, being on top of the hill. Park Mammoth is just kind of straight out in front of you. You see it and you're like, okay, this is what I've got. And the thing that's fun about Park Mammoth is that while you can see what's ahead of you, every hole is a little bit different. They're going to require you to hit different shots that might need to be high on certain occasions. They might need to be low on certain occasions. You might need to cut it. You might need to draw it. And not to say that old silo doesn't have those same sort of things, especially the draw and cut element, but I just, it's, it's just mind boggling to think at this point now, when you, you go to places like Park Mammoth or Sweeten's Cove, you look at places like that and it's just like, why doesn't every golf course try to do that? And with what mother nature provides in the way of land, obviously you can't control that. And, you know, Park Mammoth and Sweeten's Cove and in the case of Sweeten's, it didn't always look like it did, but you would like to think that 
with enough creative thinking, old silo maybe could have gotten around some of those problems and made it a bit more hospitable to the golf course itself because hard mammoth, I mean, yeah, there'll be bad weather that comes through there, but it's hard to imagine anything really damaging the golf course to a significant extent that's within reason. Like it might get, might get some heavy rain, but the golf course is going to drain really well and funnel that out to a pretty quick extent. Whereas we've documented it with old silo, a couple holes in particular, they get rain and they're just washed out and you might as well just not even playing because they're going to be such a degraded experience from everything else you get out there. So I hope that, I hope that for people who haven't played both golf courses, more, more than likely you haven't played old silo, I would reckon. But if you haven't played both golf courses, just imagine, imagine going to the golf course you can think of that has the largest scope of pure acreage. Maybe there's housing in the area that forces you to cross some streets, something like that. But just compare that to then being at a place that is purely golf where it's all in a nice little nook and yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be some challenging spots where there might be, might be some interesting land features. Like, you know, you think about 11 green or 12 T at park mammoth, that's kind of an interesting spot with all the trees around there specifically. And it comes to keeping the grass alive versus everywhere else where you can get a good amount of sunshine and airflow pretty easily. But long story short, you really can't compare the amount of manpower it takes to keep a place like Old Silo going when you go to somewhere like Park Mammoth. Right. I have I have played a lot of Chattanooga golf. I have played Park Mammoth several times. These are it's a different grass. You know, that's bent grass was the the choice du jour back then. Everybody wanted it because it was dark green. It looked like, you know, that was the peak chasing augusta era yeah. of golf everyone yeah. everybody wanted to be as green as augusta national that's what they thought consumers mm-hmm. had to have i've played a lot of brown golf courses they're absolutely as much fun if not more with a a good um yeah granted it's mud season right now so yeah the the brown the bermuda's asleep and on a wet day if you you know if it's going to be wet okay you deal with the mud but you know, a little bit of uh, dried out just a little bit. And that is so much fun. And that is just mm-hmm. absolutely not what you get at that, um, that 1990s kind of, well, let's put in some moguls to divide holes and direct traffic and drainage. So it, uh, I'll get you out of here on this From you know, every golf course, ev- almost every golf architect is really busy right now. Mm-hmm. There are new courses being built, um, Courses that are, were renovated as, goodness, there are courses that were renovated as recently as, you know, 15, 20 years ago that are getting complete overhauls now. The, the sure. COVID boom has a lot of deferred maintenance has been swept up into master plans and people are investing in golf and in golf courses. Mm-hmm. From just, you know, you're working, um, you still have an eye, obviously, in the golf business. What are you seeing? What are are you hearing as far? Are we just, is history just repeating itself? Are we back to using golf courses to sell houses and we're chasing, you know, the name on it? You know, I didn't know any architect's name 
you know, I, I knew Jack Nicholas golf courses. I knew I'd heard of the Jones guys mm -hmm. before I knew any golf history. Um, Lee Trevino, basically all the player architects I'd heard of. And then I knew who Pete Dye was because of Kearney Hill. And I, I probably, yeah, I guess the open doctor, uh, Reese Jones, because they'd talk about him ad nauseum every year at the U S open there for about 15 years. Yeah. Uh, observationally, anecdotally, what are you seeing? Are we smarter now? Or are we just, uh, is the, when, before interest rates jumped up, are we just doing the same thing all over again? I am optimistic about what's going on and the place that was coming to mind as you were explaining your train of thought there was the new course in West Palm beach. I think it's called the park. I think the, uh, the new match with uh, Rory, Lexi, Rosang and Max okay. Homa is going right. there next month. And for those of you who haven't heard about it before, I think that will be a very interesting watch when it comes to where where golf could be heading and what places need to be thinking about or doing because this is a place that it has it seems to have the sweetens cove or park mammoth dynamic of actually i'll leave park mammoth out just compared to sweetens it's got the sweetens element of like we don't care how you come dressed just come up here get some golf clubs get a golf ball go out there and have fun but architecturally it's got these like fun shots that use a small amount of land and like just based on the photos and videos i've seen like it's not going to take that much manpower and that much equipment to maintain a place like that and i'd like to think that now that places like those are becoming a little bit more common sweden's cove i think has a lot to do with this kind of resurgence Winter there, Park Nine, a good example. The whole world's down in Orlando yeah. right now, and that was yeah. a, a a refurbishment done on a shoestring budget, um, with an eye of being maintained, kind of on a, a shoestring budget. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you mentioned the park. You know, I, I can't help but think there's Bobby Jones in Atlanta, and this one in Palm Beach County was that the one that initially had like a twenty million dollar price tag? Probably, if I'm thinking okay. the same one, yeah. So, so there, there, therein lies the paradox, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think if we, if we look at old silo and places that fit a similar bill to that course, I think, I think there's enough knowledge out there now about what needs to be done in order to keep a golf course alive when it comes to getting a golf course to thrive versus being alive, I think is a big difference. And I don't want to name names, but I can think of plenty of golf courses in this general area that were built in the late nineties or early two thousands that they're fine. Like they're not going to blow you away by any means, but like if you really sit there and think about it, it's like, is this place going to be, operational in 50 60 years and i hope the answer to that is yes i never want to see a golf course close but if if nothing is done and you've got all these golf courses that put an emphasis on fun and just being playable because that's another thing we haven't even talked about with this era of golf courses and the kind of turn of the century era is that 
so many of them just aren't that fun. If you're a bad golfer, force carries, you hit it a little bit left, a little bit right. You're in someone's backyard or you're in a pond. And that's another one of the things that seems to be a big emphasis in today's new golf courses is that like you've just got a tee box grass. There might be a bunker out there and there might be some water to negotiate, but the emphasis is all on fun. And if, if that seems to be the trend that people continue to look towards, which I think it is, then I think that golf courses being built or refurbished right now have a very bright future. And then golf courses in the old silo bucket, it just becomes a matter of what can we do to keep our golf course interesting for people to want to come play it and like might have fun, might have a couple beers, whatever your goal is with the outing, you're going to get it there. But what's going to be the, that thing that sets it apart and is going to make someone want to go there versus a place like Park Mammoth where it seems like from what I've heard, other people want to emulate something similar if they've got the land for it. So that will be the thing that I'll look for in the next 10 to 15 years to see how that develops. And I guess maybe in 2040, we can have another podcast and figure out just how exactly that, that has come to fruition. Yeah. By, by then the pendulum will have swung back, you know, golf digests, uh, Golf Digest in particular, its initial list, this is a fun little bit of trivia. The first list was not the top, golf, not the best golf courses in America. It was the 100 hardest golf courses, um, that which included Lindsay Golf Course in Fort Knox, Kentucky. It made the list. The on-base uh, golf course made wow. the list as one of the one of the hardest, um, and I, that was in the 60s. Uh, and it quickly, I, th- I think there were only one or two editions like that, and then it became kind of the top top and but that if i could describe 90s golf architecture in one felt one phrase it'd just be championship course yeah you know you don't hear anybody building about oh. that we we are we are in the era of the bandon dunes model you know the core crenshaw david mcclay kid with um short have fun you know let the let the blue bloods as they are and, you know, maybe the super ambitious places like Aaron Hills that are built to try to host a, a championship. Um, I think that a, a lot of people finally recognized after that big golf crash that they were they were never going to host a U.S. Open. They were yeah. going to be lucky to ever get a state open. Well, Nobody ever David, told them that. But- <laughs> David, you hit the nail on the head. I can't tell you how many times I've just shaken my head or wanted to put my fist through a wall when I see on a golf course's website, come check out our championship golf course. Like, what does that mean? Like, that doesn't tell me anything. It means like- it's 7,200 yards, and and you really shouldn't play it unless you're going to get a golf scholarship somewhere. Yes. Those are the <laughs> yeah. only people that need to be – those are the only people that need to be back there. Yeah. Yeah, it – championship course that was that was that was it and and we are away from that model and you know the participation boom that covid has given us that seems to be sticking around you know 2024 will be telling we're a couple years on from that will um prices are are still going up i saw the the um 
Golf Digest hot list, the equipment list come out and whew, boy, you can you can get a home equity line to, you know, get yourself a bag of clubs these days. Um it was so yes, but that kind of welcoming, come as you are, um, not don't have to play it all the way back. Don't have to um beat the customer over the head with a golf course. Yeah, I hope that stays the trend. I'm I'm glad you're seeing that, and I'm glad you mentioned you kind of phrased it that way because that's what is being lauded within at least the, the nerddom, the golf nerdery. You know, that's what mm-hmm. we want to see. You know, yeah. places like that. So and maybe what, it'll work. One other thing, too, um, I brought this up in the article, but to your point about a golf course just wanting to flaunt on itself or being hard. Old silo from the championship tees. It was something of a course rating like 75 and a slope of 140, give or take. And if you if you know how to read those numbers, I mean, the basic way to put it is that if you play from that tee, you're going to get your ass kicked. Like that's just the blunt of blunt of the numbers. And then you take Park Mammoth, where you know it's a challenging golf course. I've certainly been humbled there the couple of times I've been there, but those numbers are far less intimidating with something like 70 and 125. Like right. anyone can step out on, I don't know, hole, hole two at park mammoth. And they can be like, okay, I can make a par on this hole. Right. The number of holes where you could say that at old silo, just based off memory, I would say any golfer, maybe three or four holes where you're thinking like, okay, I can make par here. Otherwise it's just kind of like, well, I hope I hope I get out of here without losing the golf ball and try again mm-hmm. on the next hole. Number eight was a, a golf hole that brought you out of the Somerset Creek Valley back up to, uh, you kind of wound around. That was one of the hardest long par four golf holes I've ever played. The eighth hole at Old Silo. Mm-hmm. You had to hit a long, well-placed draw, or if you wanted to cut it, you had to take it up over a cliff blind. Yeah. Um, and, and there was trouble, right? There was sheer sheer rock face, right? So you could get lost over there because there was drainage creek to the right of the path over there. Something, 400 and something yards. I don't know. I just remember that being, always being one of the most intimidating, most difficult shots. I, but even the short holes, like the second hole, you could pull one onto the highway. You could lose one right into... Yeah you know, into the woods. It was not, it, it was not score friendly. It was from the era that you wanted to challenge the best, right? And, and everybody want, thought they could host a, an open championship um, type situation or get some kind of PGA tour. Cause that's when that was big money. Um, the, yeah. the, the allure, they, they dangle right that now old style. I have fond memories of it. I wish I had been a better golfer when I played it. It probably would have been more fun. Um, but mm-hmm. understood golf course architecture a little bit better because um, it had big, huge greens. You know, being in the right part of the green would have been would have made a difference. Um, and those first few years, just in the immaculate conditions, there was in this part of the country. There was at the time there was nothing better outside of private clubs. I mean, it was. Yeah, I would get. I still get people when I mention it, when I put up an old photo or something of old silo, I'll get people that chime in. Like this article has, has upped my social media traffic because people are like, Oh, I never got to play it. Or man, I missed that place. It was so pure in its heyday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just an interesting case study. One of, I guess, hundreds, if not thousands of courses that have closed over the, that, you know, met a similar fate that kind of slowly bled to death. Um, but that was our gym. That was our shooting star. 
it was only here for about a decade and a half. And, you know, it was a must-see, must-play place. And then it just wasn't. It was wild. Yeah. Yeah, that, I don't know, just something about the way you phrased it, the fact that it was only here for 15 or 16 years in the grand scheme of things, that's such a small amount of time. And maybe it's just the fact that it's recency bias, but when you see the comments trickle in about people reminiscing about the place, you would think the golf course was open for hundreds of years, the way right. people talk, but it was just that short. And I'm trying to think of like a good sports comparison off the top of my head and like something other than golf with what would kind of be similar to that. And like, like a, a one, a flash in the, the pan. One, the, yeah. Like the one thing that kind of comes to mind for me is Jim Harbaugh's run with the 49ers. He's on my mind with the new chargers job he just right. got, but he leaves Stanford comes to the NFL and just immediately NFC championship, NFC championship, Super Bowl, and then just yeah. goodbye back to back to college. I go right. The reversion to the mean, which is yeah. what um, were you? Did you feel like you were in any danger when you went out and did your site visit out in Old Zala? Was there a pack of you know, coyotes <laughs> kind of poking their head around, looking at you sideways? No, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I I actually didn't expect you to go in the direction of wildlife, but when I got there i was kind of wondering if there would be any residents who would come up to me and be like hey what do you think you're doing here but i i just kind of strolled around for 30 minutes took a few pictures with my phone flew my drone and there were people who drove by i'm sure they saw me and no one really made anything of it and if i'm not mistaken i think i recall seeing people say things along the lines of well it's a nice place to go for a walk now or you know it's just a good place to go enjoy nature and yeah you've got the interstate right there but aside from that when you just look at the scenery if you've got if you've got your airpods in or something listening to music then you would never know they're right there you would feel very immersed with nature but um the remnants yeah, of those concrete paths are going to be there for a while. So yeah, I can see that being parts of it being a really pleasant walk. Yeah. I would be willing to bet the the Creek area though, that Creek Valley is probably a, a wildlife refuge at, at certain points of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I would, <laughs> I think I've, I think I've told you about my fear of snakes before. I would hate to go over there during the summer months right now. I'd be walking on eggshells <laughs> at what I might see over there, but I, yeah, it would be it would be fascinating to know just what exactly lurks in those corners these days. But you know, since we're talking about the property, one other thing that has always interested me, and I could never get a good contact to reach out to about for this element, but I'm sure with your day job you could really speak to this. But the real estate factor of what the golf course's closure is meant for those homes. I remember when I wrote the article there was a house for sale that looked out over uh, it's probably like the 16th tee. And I would have been fascinated to know what that house would be worth if the golf course was still operational compared to whatever the asking price was for it a year ago, just what that value is and how much the golf course not being there has impacted the price of those homes. Oh yeah. That is 
that is just lawsuit fuel right there. When you're, mm -hmm. when it's something's deeded, the development is, you know, they never chart that. That was such a mistake, such a business model flaw. They never, the ones that required homeowners to be members of the golf course, they at mm -hmm. least had some baseline revenue they could count on. They knew they could keep the water on and keep the course at a, a bare minimum, you know, keep it mowed. Uh, in a little closer to home, Cherry Blossom ran into that. Cane Run ran into that where they didn't, the these big neighborhood courses were built, but they didn't require any, you know, they were just selling the houses. They didn't want mm -hmm. to sell a a revenue stream. The customers didn't want to get the the home buying customers didn't want to get dinged with that. Yeah. And it was, um, yeah. So, but when you've got things that are deeded, deed restricted to always be green space or be a golf course, um, Andover went through that. They went through mm -hmm. a big conversion, um, yeah. big legal fight that ended up settling out. That was a residential course here in Lexington. Uh, that was much more golf in the hallway kind of mm -hmm. thing where your houses, like seven different neighborhoods touched this, this private golf course. Um, so yeah, what the, I think that market has settled out to where if it's something like Andover, where it's maintained, it's almost like parkway green space. Um, people are, it, it's not, it's almost neutral. It's either neutral to positive because it, it becomes an amenity. If it's made, if the neighborhood can take it over, um, which is what Andover has done. Something like old silo where it might be just one guy cutting the grass to keep it at shin height, you know, basically at bush hog height rather mm -hmm. than letting it go wild and crazy. Um, yeah, those people probably took a hit back um, as it was, as things were shaken out at the end of the last decade. Well, that's, that's another thing too, is that like the, the comments I heard were that the property needs to quote, maintain the look of a golf course and when you're by the clubhouse, yeah, you can stand out on that balcony, look down, and you might have to squint, but you could be like, okay, I can see where the 18th hole would fit there. I could see how that's where the first hole would be. But then you get towards that west side of the property where you do have some houses that are more integral. Over there, you'd be really stretching the definition of golf course look in order to make that sell. Yeah, that's... No one ever, no one ever wonders what's going to happen when things go wrong. I used to always mm -hmm. joke about that with clients that when they were starting a new business, um, they were all excited. And they wanted me to write everything up, and I'd start asking hard questions, and they they just look at me like you obstinate killjoy. That's not why we're here. <laughs> like, well, if nothing ever went wrong, no one would ever come see me. Most lawyers yeah. wouldn't have jobs. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I understand that they, they, they drew all these deed restrictions and these golf courses got in, you know, sold all this real estate and nobody ever imagined that anything bad would ever happen. But now, unfortunately to old silo, it did. Now, let me ask you this question, because this was something that was uh, near my mind when I wrote this and especially so afterwards when reactions started to come in before I wrote the article, I knew that old silo had an effect on people hence why i chose to write about it why in your opinion was old silo and its closing so much more different than andover or since i'm more familiar with them in louisville places like glen mary or indian springs why was old silo's closure that much more hard-hitting for people 
Old Silo was just that much better of a golf course. You know, the, these Glen Mary, Indian Hills, um, even the River Road Country Club down in Louisville, places that have closed um, and over here. Uh, those were basically green space amenities to sell to sell houses. The golf courses were piecemeal put together. They were not gyms. David Marsh, I used to, I when I interviewed Brian Ross the first time about Park Mammoth, he said he, he was lucky he had a partner on that design to pull him back because being his first real design, he had 20 years of experience and, and observation and everything. And he, you know, the temptation was to put it all in the golf course the first time, to put all the bells, all the whistles in it and make it make 18 all-star Hall of Fame holes. That's the the temptation he had to fight. And yeah. and he was he was lucky to have a sounding board. Old silo, there was very little what you'd call spillage, trend, you know, very little less than spectacular at old silo that the yeah there were houses there but you couldn't really hit them with a golf ball it was four and a half hours of being out in nature on this wonderful landscape with these really cool holes and these bunkers unlike you know just visually it was a golf course unlike anything anybody in kentucky had seen unless mm -hmm. you traveled kind of far and wide and it was ours you know it wasn't it wasn't private you know it was you could walk up, pay your money, and there you go. And so there was something, I don't know if there was a and just an everyman element that people identified with being in Mount Sterling, um, the you know, public fanfare, the the recognition people like to, you know, around here. Kentucky's known for some, you know, not great things. Like, yeah, we have bourbon and horse racing, um, but we've got some other issues. Sure. That we try not to talk about as much. Everybody else like gets to talk about it all the time, though. Yeah, so when we, yeah. so so when somebody local makes good, Kentuckians root for that person or that entity like no other, and that's what Old Silo was. It was our hey, look at us. We've got look at this. We've got a great one, um, and it just didn't. It, it was, I think it it affected people because it, they didn't want to believe it was too good to be true, but it was. It was too expensive to be true in rural Kentucky. Um, so now I hope we're smarter. 20 years on, I hope we're, we're a little wiser uh, with our golf courses. There have been some really good golf courses built since then. Mm -hmm. uh, Park Mammoth, Old Stone uh, come to mind. Some are, are being renovated and touched up in, in really smart way. You know, we lost uh, Big Spring was a one here. It was a, a private, a family-owned private course. Uh, they got sold to be housing development and people, yeah, people, people kind of bemoaned its demise because it was interesting golf on a budget. It was a low cost golf club, wasn't a country club. Yeah. It was just golf. Old silo was ours. It wasn't, it wasn't theirs. It wasn't the rich people's. It was ours. It was everybody's. And, and then it, it just didn't last. It died and everybody was sad. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't have a whole lot to add. I think you summarized it pretty well. It's just not being from here and having never actually seen the course with my own two eyes when it was really good. 
it it makes it that much more startling i think might be the best word to use when you see these reactions come in and like i i can't vouch from personal experience and say yeah this was truly a great golf course because the one time i was there i didn't think that but yeah i i think it probably is the everyday man being able to say yeah this was my golf course this was my dream place to go that probably that probably sums it up um but it's it's a I'd place like I wish I had more pictures of. I wish I had a blog in 2005 yep. and a high quality camera. And I, I could have preserved some of that, of what, yeah. what you saw being there, because it was, it was just so spectacular. That sand and, draws your eye and the, the contours on the green, big ground. It, it, it had it all. And the fact that there are so few images available of what, that used to look like is that's that's the other thing when it came to putting this together is that you know if i'm gonna articulately tell this story i've got to have some sort of visual proof to like get people who had been there to reminisce and be like oh man look at how good that place used to look or have someone who hasn't been there say oh wow that does look pretty sweet but there may be 10 images when you look through google images that kind of kind of showcase that otherwise it's just kind of like well that, that could course, be any random but, golf course there there yeah. you have ladies and gentlemen our next episode for the just completely arcane and nerdy where we can talk about the awfulness of golf course websites the templates <laughs> and why they're terrible with ethan fisher pga <laughs> Just a quick note to clean up a couple of things. I think this might be the episode uh, that I made the most mistakes, misspoke the most times in such a short space or span, um, confused several courses kind of inexcusably. Uh, the course in Lexington that closed that was on a budget was Spring Valley, not Big Spring. Big Spring is alive and well with two courses at two different campuses in Louisville. Um, I do like that Reese Jones redo there. Uh, I also confused Indian Springs with Indian Hills. Indian Hills and Bowling Green has overcome its own couple of traumas. It seems to be doing well. John Mullendorf, if you're listening, hi. I want to come down and see you soon. Um, and also, I know for a fact, I said David Marsh. That is a different person. That is not Graham Marsh. Uh, Graham and David, two different people, both Australians, both good, much better golfers than me. So I'm not losing my mind. I realized that I made those mistakes and just wanted to clean that up. Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. Old Silo was the best of Kentucky golf, yet at the same time was an avatar for everything that the golf course industry got wrong during the building boom of the 1980s through the early 2000s. Remember, if you want to elevate your Blind Shots Podcast experience, head over to the One Bearded Golfer channel on YouTube to catch a fun snippet or two of the show. Full video episodes produce insanely large video files that, honestly, I can't imagine anyone watching start to finish anyway. But we're pretty good in small doses, so go check it out. Hope you enjoyed what you heard here today. I'm also hopeful that Ethan, freed from the shackles of his own podcast hosting duties, might become a more regular contributor over at the blog and hear this show. If you didn't enjoy this episode, I'm sorry, but we probably need to have a conversation about reasonable expectations. 
Finally, remember to stand up and sit up straight to drink lots of water. Good posture and good hydration are the simple little details that so many of us get wrong that could drastically improve our quality of life, at least as far as you know. And as always, when you have the choice, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. Christopher, what is your favorite thing about playing golf? Spend time with my family. Which is your favorite club to hit? My driver. Why do you like hitting your driver best? Because it hits the ball hard and far. Yeah. I do have a I do have a very important question before okay. we dive into old silo. My wife wanted me to ask you, when you introduce yourself to people, do you go up to them and say, I am the one bearded golfer? Absolutely not. Never. <laughs>